0: Hello and welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francione. This is our 21st No Frills, No Bells, No Whistles Commentary concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, the failure of animal welfare reform, Veganism as the moral baseline of the animal rights movement, and creative nonviolent vegan advocacy as the cornerstone of animal rights activism, and the importance of the principle of nonviolence in all of our advocacy efforts. Indeed, the importance of the principle of nonviolence generally. The uh, the problems of the world are problems of violence. Uh, those problems will not be solved with more violence. That's something uh, about which we can be pretty sure. In any event, in this commentary, I am going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about uh, the new book that I did with Professor Garner. I am going to talk about the new Abolitionist Approach Forum that we launched two weeks ago today. And I am going to comment briefly on an essay that appeared in The Atlantic by uh, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman about Happy Meat and about why uh, why why it makes perfect sense that we don't eat our dogs but that we eat pigs she has finally uh, shed some light on the moral schizophrenia that we all suffer from and we'll uh, we'll look to see uh, how bright or dim that light is in any event before i get to those three topics i wanted to say that the response that i got to the interview that i did with uh, jeff pers and renata peters in the last commentary has been overwhelming people really enjoyed the the interview uh... i've gotten a number of emails and comments from people uh, who were inspired by it? Uh, the the fact that, that uh, for those of you who didn't listen to the commentary, you should listen to it. But it's basically an interview with two uh, vegan abolitionist advocates in uh, Alice Springs, Australia, in Central Australia, a place that's dominated by a lot of animal agriculture. And um, and Jeff and Renata, uh, who are not careerists, they don't work for an organization, they aren't there uh, doing fundraising or whatever. They're they're out educating the public about uh, abolition and about veganism, and uh, they're doing it uh, with their own money and their own uh, resources and they're uh, they're they're having a significant impact even though they've just started their efforts in alice springs they're they're already seeing a significant impact, and they discussed that with me and uh, i've since heard from them again about uh some more of the things that are happening about which they're very excited including the fact that uh, they had an experience with um, somebody a a visitor i think from sydney uh who um who was uh, touring the area and uh she she was at a a, a marketplace where uh, Jeff and Renata had had their uh, their abolitionist stall set up, and uh, this person, uh, as I understand it, uh, went went from eating a uh, crocodile burger t- and was on her way to another stand where she was going to get a camel burger, and she stopped at uh, Jeff and Renata's stand and um, and. Walked away vegan, in essence. But uh, as I said, I've spoken with Jeff and Renata, and they've told me about this and some other experiences they've had. So I hope, uh, in in the very, very near future, to have a follow up with Jeff and Renata, and uh, in which uh, I also hope, uh, if if I can if I can figure out how to do this with uh, Skype, uh, and I think I have, uh, I'd like to have. Um, uh, that person uh, who stopped by the stall in Alice springs, who i su- suppose is now back in Sydney and who is uh, uh apparently now adopted uh of veganism, so i'm very very happy about that and uh, and i'm I'm glad you enjoyed that interview. I enjoyed it too and um and i'm going to be bringing not only uh, a follow up with jeff and uh and Wren in the very near future. But I'm going to be speaking with other uh, advocates who are out there uh, doing creative nonviolent nonviolent vegan advocacy. They're all over um, and um, and and every day I'm finding out about um, uh, new groups and in, in, uh, in different countries that are doing all sorts of interesting things and i'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, start. Focusing more on on uh, what they're doing uh, and the sorts of advocacy they're doing, so so as to give you uh, more ideas about how to do your own um, uh, abolitionist vegan creative nonviolent advocacy. All right. Well, the three things I want to talk about uh, in in today's uh, today's uh, commentary. The first I'd like to mention is. Today is November 9th. I don't know. This may not be posted until tomorrow, Uh, but uh, today, right now, when it's being recorded, it's November 9th, the official release date uh, by Columbia University Press of my new book, The Animal Rights Debate, Abolition or Regulation. Uh, that I co-authored with Professor Robert Garner of the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. And um, in the book, the book has three sections. In the first section, I present an argument in favor of the abolitionist theory of animal rights. In the second section, Professor Garner uh, makes the argument that um, regulation uh, is is doing uh, a, good, uh, a, a great deal of good and can lead incrementally to a, a rights situation. Although he and I disagree on what a rights situation would look like, he and I also disagree on the value of animal welfare regulation. Uh, he thinks well of it. I do not. I don't think it provides uh, protection for animal interests and I also think it's counterproductive in that it makes people feel more comfortable about animal exploitation. So today is the the official release date of the book. I'm sitting here looking at the uh, the complimentary copies that Columbia sent me. They do a very very nice job designing books, I must say. And they've done the book in hardcover and in softcover simultaneously. Uh, and um, I haven't looked yet at the price of the hardcover. My guess is it's a lot more expensive because that that market is primarily the library market. So. Um, Although I recommend that you all get a hardcover copy because you'll want to keep it for you know decades and then pass it on to your children and your children's children, um, in 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 um, in many ways the book is sort of a follow up to my book Rain Without Thunder, which I wrote in 1996 and was published by Colum- uh, by uh, Temple University Press. In Rain Without Thunder, I introduced the concept of new welfareism. W- what I argued was that even though we were using the rhetoric of of animal rights in the in the 80s and the and, and in the first part of the 90s that was basically that the concept of animal rights was, was 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 really being transformed into a concept of new welfare that is, you had people saying, "Oh yes, well we, uh, we, we really see as the long term goal the abolition of animal use or at least significantly reduced animal use, uh, but we believe that animal welfare reform can lead us incrementally in that direction well I, I, I called that form of animal welfare. Uh, support for animal welfare, new welfareism, because it wasn 't like classical welfareism which s- saw animal use as something that was uh, not morally objectionable at all, and it was just a question of making sure that animal use was humane and that we weren't inflicting unnecessary suffering on animals, to the new welfareist position, which said, well, you know, we think in the long term we ought to abolish animal exploitation, or in the long term we ought to significantly reduce animal use, so we don't we don't really think that animal use is okay in the way that, that the classical welfarist, uh, thought it was okay. But, we think that it's okay for us to support animal welfare reform that is indistinguishable, really, from what was being supported in the 1960s and the 1970s. We think it's okay to keep on supporting that as as an incremental way of getting to a situation of abolition or a situation of reduced use. And I, I argue that new welfareism was wrong-headed in a number of ways. It was, it was doctrinally wrong, it was morally wrong, in that if animal exploitation is wrong, we ought not to be promoting humane animal Exploitation, just as if child molestation is wrong, we ought not to be promoting humane child molestation. If rape is wrong, we ought not ought not to be promoting humane rape. Uh, and similarly, if animal exploitation is is morally objectionable, if we can't justify it morally, if it's morally objectionable, we ought not to be promoting humane animal exploitation. Uh, and I also argued that it doesn't wor- it doesn't work anyway. I mean, it's, it's doctrinally problematic, but it's also practically problematic in the sense that. Animal welfare reform doesn't work. They are property because they are property. The 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 um, level of protection that animals will get for their interests will always be low, and and uh, and that's historically true. It's true now. It'll be true into the future. And and so what I argued uh, in that book was that um, animal welfare is not only morally problematic, but it's practically problematic. It simply doesn't work. Its main effect, its main effect, is to make animal use more economically efficient. That is, animal welfare identifies practices that are economically inefficient and and corrects them. So it makes animal exploitation more efficient, which has nothing to do, by the way, with moving toward abolition or, or moving toward any status any any sort of moral status or recognition of inherent value of animals it's simply making the use of property more efficient and the other effect that it has is it makes people feel better about animal exploitation so so I argued in rain without thunder that animal welfare that new welfareism uh, as a form of animal rights uh, uh, advocacy was just Wrong it it, it it was the opposite of animal rights advocacy that animal rights really ought to be focused on abolition both as an end and as a means to an end that is that, that, that animal rights should prescribe not only an end point of abolition but it should, should prescribe a means to the end of of of, uh, of achieving abolition, and that means was uh, veganism, basically educating people about not wearing, eating, using, consuming whatever. Animals or animal products—that was the means which, which was suited to achieve the end and, and was, was um, consistent with the end of, of, uh, of, of abolition. And so I argued that new welfareism was problematic, both doctrinally and, and uh, practically. And um, and then now, and, and in that book, I actually. Uh, uh, criticized Garner, who had written a book the year before, two years before, in in praise of animal welfare reform, and I explained why I thought Garner was wrong. This started a sort of a debate between Garner and me, and we appeared at at a couple of places over the years, and and talked, and and we exchanged a lot of emails, and we referred to each other and things that we wrote, but we never really had a direct uh, uh, published debate. So, a couple of uh, years ago, uh, I approached uh, Robert and suggested that, um, you know, we've been arguing for, you know, <laughs> a decade and a half. Why don't we do it in a book? And that's what we did. The animal rights debate is... is uh, 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 It's a debate between somebody who maintains that we ought to be... that we ought to abolish animal exploitation and that the means to achieve abolition is creative, nonviolent, vegan advocacy and somebody who um, maintains that animal use might be all right, but that animals have a right not to suffer. Uh, I don't agree with that position. I don't think we have, we can justify using them. Uh, uh, Garner, uh, argues in the book that, uh, we may be able to justify use if we don't, uh, if we don't make animals suffer. I, I don't, it's not clear to me how as a practical matter you could ever have that, but, 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 but I don't want to get too deeply into the book, um, except to say that uh, I think it's an interesting book. I think um, we we tried very hard, both of us tried very hard, to make the book um, simple without being simplistic. That is, I think we fairly describe... The, the the philosophical debates and the economic problems involved and and the the substantive issues, but we we tried uh, to make it very accessible and to make it something that anybody who's interested in the issue um, should be able to understand uh, and, and find accessible the arguments that we have in the book. Uh, we really tried to make it uh, accessible and to not load it up with a lot of um, a lot of jargon. So I hope that you will enjoy the book. Uh, and, uh, and I hope uh, in a, in a, a future uh, commentary uh, podcast to have uh, Professor Garner on and, uh, and we can discuss some of the issues in the book. But in any event, its official release date is today, so you can get it on um, the Columbia University website or any of the, uh, the, the Internet sellers or at your bookstore. Uh, so in any event, I hope you enjoy the book, The Animal Rights Debate, Abolition or Regulation. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention. Okay, well, the second thing that uh, I wanted to talk about is the Abolitionist Approach Forum, which we launched two weeks ago today. Again, I'm recording this on uh, on November 9th, and um, it may not be posted until tomorrow. But anyway, two weeks ago today, we publicly launched uh, the Abolitionist Approach Forum. I started the Abolitionist Approach website in two thousand. 2006, I think it was. I think it was December 2006, and right from the beginning, uh, I received a lot of requests to attach a discussion forum to the website, and I didn't do that for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, the abolitionist approach website is um, is uh, something that was created by and is maintained by uh, a small group of volunteers, and so it's a lot of work. And I didn't feel that uh, we really could do a discussion forum at that time, given uh, the, the the resources that we had available um, of, of of a small number of volunteers. Um, that group of uh, of volunteers has now grown considerably, and we now have people all over uh, the planet, really, um, who who are really well versed in. Uh, the, the theory of abolition the the uh, the abolitionist approach to animal rights they understand the the philosophy that uh, th- that that 's been developed about veganism and they understand the importance of veganism that it 's not just a a a diet or lifestyle issue it 's a way of approaching existence um, and it 's a way in which we we um, we make the principle of nonviolence seriously, and in, uh, 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 in which in which we apply the principle of nonviolence to our own lives, and and, and, and take nonviolence seriously in our own lives. And uh, and as I say, there's a growing number of people uh here in the united States in canada in in europe in asia in uh, everywhere uh, there's a growing number of people who subscribe to this view and um, and who are really um, quite conversant and, and, and able to sort of deal with questions about the theory and whatnot so I made a decision um, about a month ago uh, that it was time to now start start that discussion forum that it, 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 it could now be started, and I wouldn't have to deal with it every day because I don't have the time to deal with it every day. And uh, and it wasn't something I had to rely on one or two or three other people to deal with. That um, I now had a group of of colleagues uh, who were who were really able to do this sort of thing and quite good at at uh, at, at, at uh, this sort of internet communication. In many ways, much better than I am. And um, it's a generational thing. <laughs> uh, but in any event, so so I. I I uh, decided we'd go ahead and do this and two weeks ago we launched it and we have over 200 members already and um, the the quality of discussions is, is terrific. Uh, we have different sorts of discussions for different people. Um, you know, we have discussions that there are people who want to talk about the philosophy of abolition or the philosophy of veganism, and so we have we have discussion groups that talk about uh, t- talk about those topics. We have discussion groups that focus on the right the difference between animal rights and animal welfare. We have uh, discussion groups that focus on all sorts of theoretical issues. Um, it, you know, we have uh, we have discussions that uh, that dis- we have discussions that focus on the difference between uh, my approach to animal ethics and Singer's approach. Or Reagan's approach. Uh, We have all sorts of theoretical discussions. We also have all sorts of practical discussions for people who want to learn about uh, more practical things related to animal advocacy. You know, theory is important. You you can't. I mean, I I find I always find it curious that um, there are some animal advocates out there who who say, well, you know, we can ignore theory. Theory is irrelevant. You know, we need to sort of get on with, you know, practical things. The answer is you don't know what to do practically unless you've got some theory which guides your selection of what practical things you're going to do. I mean, if you just say, oh, I don't really care about theory. I'm just going to do something. Well, (laughs) there are lots of things you can do. And the question is some are better than others, and some may even be uh, counterproductive. So if you say, I've got to do something, I would say you don't spend your time on you know campaigns for cage-free eggs or happy meat because that's not going to do anything. It's not going to do anything to help animals. As a matter of fact, that's going to make people feel better about exploiting animals, so stay away from that. But in order to understand the arguments about why you shouldn't, as a practical matter, pursue campaigns for, for cage-free eggs or happy meat, uh, you need to understand the theory behind why those are, are, are problematic selections or choices. And so theory is really important, so we can't you know we can't denigrate it, we can't disregard it. We don't know what to do practically unless we have a good theory which informs our selection of practical strategy. So we have, as I say, a, a, a large number of of, uh, of forum groups or, or or topics that are focused on various theoretical issues. And then we have a variety of forum topics or groups or whatever you want to call them that are focused on practical uh, uh, issues. Uh, that are informed by the theory, but where people are are exploring you know yes I you know I, I understand the abolitionist theory and I accept it and I, you know and I agree that that animal welfare is really not uh, the wise choice to make, but how do I educate in this context or that context, or what do I do i 've got kids and I want to I want them to be sensitive to these issues and I want to raise them vegan and you know I need some help from other parents who have had experience with raising vegan kids or i 've got a you know i 'm living with somebody who 's not a vegan, and I need to understand how to deal with that, or how to better, you know, how to how to, how to um, uh, help my partner uh, understand something that is extremely important to me, and how I can get that person to see the importance of it in her or his life. So. Um, you know, we've got we've got a theoretical, we've got practical, and we've got you know stuff like you know recipes and and and, and things like that. Uh, so it, it's a pretty. Uh, I mean, as I say, it's only been going for for two weeks publicly. We set it up and we tested it for I guess I don't know maybe a week or two before that, but um, but now, you know it's only been public for uh, two weeks now, and we've got as I said over 200 people. Uh, there are two rules uh, for for the, the forum. Uh, one is uh, you've got to engage in civil discourse. I don't care if people disagree; they can disagree, they can debate vigorously. That's fine, but people have to be respectful. They have to engage in civil discourse. Nobody's going to be calling you know people names uh, and and being you know uh, uh, unkind. I just it's, that's not going to happen. I mean, there are plenty of plenty of opportunities on the internet for you to do that. As a matter of fact, there are a seemingly endless number of opportunities for people uh... to engage in unkind communications with other people but um, that's not going to be the abolitionist approach for him. I have no problem with people, who, I have no problem with vigorous discussion, I have no, no problem with strong disagreement. Uh, I do have a problem with, with uh, uncivil discourse and, and I also have a problem with promotion of violence. Again, uh, if you want to um, engage in that sort of uh, uh, stuff then there are places for you to do that and uh, if you want to do that, do that. Uh, I think that that's really problematic. I think, as I mentioned at the beginning of this commentary, violence is part of the problem, it's not part of the solution, and um, and I'm not going to have promotion of violence on the Abolitionist Approach Forum, and that is a, uh, a uh, something that is shared by uh, the group of uh, administrators or moderators or whatever you want to call them, who are actually running the, uh, the, the, the forum. And I, I can tell you this, that I have got an absolute... Absolutely wonderful group, of very very able people uh, who are working with me uh, on this project. Um, I, I'm I'm very very happy. I mean I don't I don't monitor it every minute. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know I go in and out in terms of uh, you know when I have time uh, between classes or you know when I'm you know if I have time I I, I get on and I. Do a few uh, responses or you know a few entries, but um, it's basically being run by uh, the group of administrators and moderators, and uh, they they are just doing an absolutely terrific job, uh, and they're very very good at explaining these concepts um, in in internet friendly ways. So I've really been amazed. I, I I've looked at some of the discussions that they're they they're. Uh, they're running or moderating or whatever whatever the correct term is and um and they're very very good at it they're very good at um at explaining things uh in 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 very very uh, straightforward simple ways there have been some discussions that have gotten uh somewhat philosophically uh uh, lugubrious, I guess, for better for want of a better word. There are some that, that I mean. There are some there are some topics that people want to discuss, which are just which just lend themselves more to uh, a more a more abstract discussion. Um, so we've had some of those, and that's fine. I mean, I'm glad you know. I, mean, I I've <laughs> and I participated in some of them, so I'm I'm happy for people to get involved in you know conventional philosophical discussions where there you know there's there, there are a lot of abstract notions used, or perhaps a, a more jargon than than is needed um, but I also think that uh, for the most part the discussions have been pretty down to earth and um, and they've been uh, they've been pretty uh, they've been pretty um, uh, straightforward and I think that they've that 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 people the the the, 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 the folks the members of the forum are getting, uh, it appears to me that people are really learning a lot about uh, abolitionist theory, about the philosophy of veganism, about creative nonviolent advocacy, and things like that. So, I would encourage you, if you... I, I agree that um, we ought to have civil discourse. If you are not into promoting violence, and if you want to learn more about uh, abolition, if you want to learn more about vegan philosophy, uh, if you want to to discuss these issues with others and teach others about your perspective uh, and share your perspective with them on these issues, then I would encourage you to go to the Abolitionist Approach Forum. You can uh, access it by there's a there's a uh, a nice, one of, one of, one of the moderators did this nice little red button, uh, for the, uh, the front of the, uh, for the homepage of the website. So you can click on to abolitionist approach forum and you sign up and, um, and then, uh, you introduce yourself and you, uh, you, you, you start participating. And so I'm very happy. It's going very well. And, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops. And, um, and thus far we, we've had, uh, uh, really, I think, tremendous success in, uh, in, in, in launching this thing. So I'm very excited about that, and I hope you will enjoy it. I hope that you will uh, learn from it. I hope that you will share your views with others. I hope you will debate things, discuss things, uh, get, get yourself clear on things, help other people to get clear on things, and, uh, and, and whatnot. So I think it's a really good educational uh, uh, device, and I hope that you will use it and enjoy it. Okay, in the third part of the commentary, I want to discuss an issue I have been thinking about and writing about for a number of years now. Some years ago I coined the expression moral schizophrenia to describe the confused, deluded way in which we think about animal issues. For example, we all claim to accept the moral principle that it's wrong to inflict unnecessary suffering and death on animals. Now, as I've argued before, if that has, if that moral principle has any coherent meaning whatsoever, if it, if it means anything at all, it means we can't say that inflicting suffering and death for reasons of pleasure, amusement, or convenience is okay, because if we do, we've now created an exception that is so great as, so as to render the moral principle meaningless. Uh, and um, And yet, when we look at, at our actual use of animals, we see that 99.99999 to the nth degree of our animal use can only be justified by pleasure, amusement, or convenience. And so, you know, you don't even need a complicated theory of animal rights to, to, to get to, you know, to get to the point that we shouldn't be eating them, wearing them, using them uh, for entertainment purposes, food, hunting, whatever. I mean, there's no, there's no necessity. There's no real necessity. We're talking about conflicts that we create because we have certain desires. We have certain we, get certain, we get pleasure out of consuming and exploiting animals. So we say, well, there's a conflict between me and the animal because I get pleasure from exploiting the animal. Well, if that's your, your notion of conflict, if that's how you construct the conflict, then you have you've you've analyzed the situation in such a way as to make the moral principle useless and meaningless. this inconsistency this delusion this confusion plays out in terms of our daily lives not only in terms of what we you know uh, are thinking about unnecessary suffering and death but i mean think about it the fact that So many people have dogs and cats and other non-human companions in their house that they love, that they really love and that they regard as as persons. They they respect, they recognize and respect the personhood of those non-human animals. They love their dogs, but they stick forks into pigs. This is moral schizophrenia. And as I said, I've been writing about this for a number of years now and, and how this moral schizophrenia arises in a number of contexts. And I've never really understood you know, exactly how people really make these things work in their heads. I've never really, and I've, I've certainly never seen a good justification for why it is that we don't eat dogs, but that we eat pigs. I have never, I've never seen anything that shed light on that. But now, but now that has changed. That has changed. A few days back, I, um, I read an essay in The Atlantic written by Nicolet Hahn-Nyman who was described in The Atlantic as a livestock rancher, environmental attorney and author of Righteous Pork Chop Finding a Life and Good Food Beyond Factory Farms Righteous Pork Chop In any event, um, Nicolette Nyman is involved with something uh, called the Nyman Ranch. And I'm now looking at the website for the Nyman Ranch. And uh, when the uh, podcast is posted, there'll be links to these things. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the the website says, The finest tasting meat in the world. And there's a little emblem. Nyman Ranch, raised with care. And at the bottom of the page it says, all natural fresh products, no antibiotics, ever, and ever is in all caps, no added hormones, ever, ever is in all caps, all vegetarian feeds, humanely raised on sustainable U.S. family farms and ranches. Well, it appears as though Nicolette Hahn-Nyman is not only a promoter of Happy Meat, she's a producer, and a fairly significant producer, of Happy Meat. So, when I saw this article in The Atlantic, Dogs Aren't for Dinner, The Flaws in an Argument for Veganism, I thought, well, you know, let's see. I mean, this is The Atlantic. The Atlantic's a, you know, fairly uh, decent publication. They have good, good writing in there. Uh, and, um, and I thought, well, you know, now, after years of struggling with concept of moral schizophrenia, I'm going to have some light shed on it. Life is full of disappointments, my friends. Let me tell you what Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, author of, what's this called? Righteous Pork Chop says, and I'm going to read this to you in her own words. What each of us eats is the result of multiple factors, including income, geography, climate, culture, heritage, habit, and even, to a certain extent, evolution. And then she puts some parentheses more on that in a moment. And there's simply nothing wrong with that. Evidently, these norms are the basis for the modern Western view that eating dogs is wrong. It's no more contradictory to eat a pig but not a dog than it is to eat arugula but not purslane. When it comes to eating, we all rule some things in and other things out. Now before I go on, some of you might be saying, arugula rather than what? I read that and I didn't know what purslane was. So let me just tell you, according to Wikipedia, uh, purslane is an annual succulent. It can reach 40 centimeters high. There are 40 varieties of it cultivated. It has an extensive old world world distribution extending from North Africa through the Middle East and the Indian uh, subcontinent uh, to Malaysia and Australasia. I'm just reading this. Although it's considered a weed in the United States, it can be eaten as a leaf vegetable. Okay? All right. So, let's go back to Nicolette Hahn-Nyman's essay. She, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this, is the author of Righteous Pork Chop. So, she's basically telling us that the reason why we eat dogs and don't eat pigs is because there are cultural norms that say we shouldn't eat dogs, but it's okay to eat pigs. Then she goes on to talk about how we've evolved a relationship with dogs, and we just don't have that relationship with pigs. Now, let me say this to you. If this argument works, then those people who are concerned about racism, sexism, heterosexism, and virtually every form of discrimination, every form of human rights violation, forget about it. Because cultural norms support all of those practices. Cultural norms... Are are responsible for racism. They are responsible for sexism. They are responsible for heterosexism. If you, this is really breathtaking in many ways. When I read this, I I actually had to read it a couple of times because I thought, what's going on here? Um, am I missing something? And the answer is no, I'm not. Um, she's basically saying uh, that. Cultural norms justify our moral schizophrenia. No, cultural norms may explain, may be a way of describing, may be a a way of describing the moral problem. They don't solve the moral problem. Any more than saying, well, you know, our cultural norms say that we treat white people one way, people of color another way, that we treat men one way, we treat women another way, we treat straight people one way, we treat gay people another way. I mean, you you know, you can say that. You can say, look, these, you know, racism isn't. I mean, but if I were to say to you, look, racism is not a moral problem, it's just a matter of cultural norm. I mean, you know, when it comes to socializing, when it comes to who's a member of the moral community, we just rule some people in and some people out. If I said that to you, you'd say, oh my God, that's horrible. But that's exactly what she's saying. And that's all she's saying. This is an intellectually vacuous argument, It's it's, it's actually breathtaking. The analogy between arugula and purslane is uh, also uh, silly. Uh, the decision whether to eat arugula or purslane isn't a moral decision. Not as far as I know. I mean, I, I, as you know, I know very little about purslane. I know everything I know comes from a Wikipedia entry, and those things are not always accurate, so I don't know. But I mean, you know, I, I don't know much about purslane, but I would imagine. That choosing to eat an arugula salad as opposed to a purslane salad would not really raise a moral issue. I mean, it may raise practical issues about whether you get the purslane, you know, how, how, where you get it. It's not a moral issue. Whereas um, a decision as to whether we're going to eat a sentient non human is a moral issue. And so, uh, I mean, arugula and purslane are not sentient. They have no perceptual awareness. We cannot have moral... They're alive, but they don't, they don't have any perceptual awareness. They don't have any interests. They don't have any preferences, desires, or wants. We cannot have moral obligations that we owe to arugula. We can have moral obligations that concern arugula. I can have an obligation not to hit you with a, with a bunch of arugula. But that's an obligation I owe to you. It concerns the arugula, but it doesn't, I don't owe it to the arugula. But I have moral obligations that I owe directly to non-human animals. I can have moral obligations to them, because they are sentient beings, unlike arugula and unlike purslane. So the idea that we, you know, that, that, that the decision whether to eat dogs or pigs uh, is, is, is the same sort of decision as whether you re- eat arugula or purslane is just plain nonsense, she is ignoring the fact that non-human animals are sentient. Interestingly, at the end of the essay, there's a postscript because apparently she got uh, comments from people, and she says in the po- in the updates an update, not a postscript. It says several comments criticized this piece for failing to explicitly address sentience, capacity for suffering. Well, actually, sentience is is bro- is is a, is a broader concept than that; it includes not just suffering but perceptual awareness. Apparently, these readers missed that the irrelevance of pigs' sentience is the whole point. I would be the last person to deny a pig's many admirable qualities. My book, Righteous Pork Chop, (laughs) I'm sorry, but uh, extensively describes pigs' natural behaviors and expressly compares their intelligence and capacity to suffer with that of dogs. Yet none of these traits are connected to why Americans refrain from eating dogs. The real reasons are explored in this piece. Yes, that we have a different relationship with dogs than we do with pigs. But that doesn't justify the differential. That just states that we have a different relationship. It doesn't justify it. And we can't justify it by saying it's a matter of cultural norms because that's just like saying we behave the way we behave because we behave that way. That's a description, not a particularly helpful one actually, but it's a description. It's not a justification. So, I mean, this idea that we don't eat dogs, but we eat pigs, I mean, that's a serious problem. It's a very serious problem. And it really indicates a deep, pervasive moral schizophrenia in the way we think about non-human animals. You know, I was, I was discussing this essay with some people at Rutgers, and uh, they were saying, uh, you know, Gary, we don't necessarily agree with your views, something I hear a great deal of in my life. But, um, but this essay was pretty weak to be in The Atlantic. Don't you find that surprising? And I said, no, absolutely not. If you look at the mainstream media, particularly the better media, this is exactly the sort of thing and the only sort of thing that gets published. And think about it. I mean, that shouldn't surprise us at all. The Atlantic is run by a group of people. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty good, pretty good publication, and has high-quality writing, uh, intelligent people who edit it and uh, control what goes into it, people who are probably fairly affluent, people who can afford to buy Niman meat, people who sit around and talk about happy exploitation and making sure that animals are being treated humanely and things like that. And I would imagine there has, there's been more than one discussion at the, I don't know, but I, would, I wouldn't be surprised uh, that there's been more than one discussion amongst people at the Atlantic who are sitting there eating their hamburgers, saying, gee, you know, I take my dog to the vet today and my dog is really sick and I'm really beside myself over it and I really love my dog and I'm sitting here wondering about eating this hamburg and I'm really, you know, I'm really wondering whether or not that makes any sense. And then all of a sudden Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, author of Righteous Pork Chop, comes in with an essay that says, oh yes, this is a matter of cultural norms. And what's interesting is the moral schizophrenia that affects us blinds people even at places like the, 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 at the Atlantic to bad writing and intellectually vacuous arguments. This, is, this argument, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't know Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, I don't mean to say anything unkind about her, but this is intellectually vacuous. It does not make any sense. It does not make any sense, but this is exactly what you would expect to see in a publication like "The Atlantic. It's what you I mean, this is what main, mainstream media loves this stuff, because it makes them feel better. It makes their elite readership feel better about exploiting animals. It helps justify their worldview. So it shouldn't surprise us that something like this, as bad as it is, is in the Atlantic. Because there's plenty of bad writing about animals in major publications and in good publications. Have you read any Peter Singer? There's plenty of bad writing. There's plenty of speciesist, vacuous writing. But people want to be assured that they can be conscientious omnivores. People want to be assured that they're not doing anything wrong when they love their dogs and eat a cow or a sheep or a pig or whatever. And this is exactly the sort of Intellectually vacuous but reassuring nonsense that helps keep that worldview in place, reinforces it, makes people feel better. This is the whole problem with animal, with this whole happy exploitation business. Is it makes people feel better. It makes people say, "Oh yeah, there's no moral problem." But in any event, so I did want to to uh, address that that essay uh, because it uh, I, I was uh, <laughs> it was. Just remarkable. I'm just remarkable. I mean, just remarkable. But it goes to show that um, even when you're at the level of the Atlantic, there's no justification for animal use. Whenever you try to justify it, you're relegated to this sort of nonsense. However, Such is life. That brings us to the end of uh, this commentary, our 21st commentary. And um, again, this is the official release date of the animal rights debate uh, by Columbia University Press, which I co-authored with Professor Garner. And uh, as I mentioned, I hope to have him on a future uh, podcast so that we can discuss uh, and debate some more, some of the ideas that uh, that we, we have in the book. And, um, also, please go to abolitionistapproach.com, and if you're interested, if you're interested in civil discourse, not promoting violence, please join the Abolitionist Approach Forum. Uh, there's a lot to learn, uh, and there are many people there for you to share your ideas with, uh, and as I mentioned before, our admin moderator staff is just first rate, and, um... You uh, you can learn a great deal from them, and they will interact with you, and uh, and they will answer all of your questions. And, and as I said, occasionally I I jump in, uh, not as much as I'd like to, but I do, and I enjoy it very very much. And I've been very impressed by the quality of the contributions and, and the discussions thus far, and uh, and I'm very very excited about the project, and I look forward to uh, to doing uh, commentary 22. Uh, in addition to having Professor Garner on in uh, what I hope will be a, a an upcoming podcast in the not too distant future, I will also uh, be having uh, Jeff Pers and Renata Peters back with their um, with the person that they spoke to in Alice Springs who uh, went from being an omnivore to a vegan uh, with what uh, w- w- with no intervening steps. As I understand the story that was told to me, we will clarify that when. Um, when Ren and uh, Jeff come back on. And we'll also be talking to other uh, abolitionists who are engaged in creative nonviolent vegan advocacy and learning from them what they're doing, the context in which they're doing it, the sorts of things that they're, uh, the sorts of responses they're getting, uh, the way they're shaping their message to the audience that they are, uh, that they're trying to reach. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll be exploring all of those things. Uh, this coming Thursday uh, November 11th uh, at lunchtime uh, between 12:30 and uh, 145 I believe it is I will be debating Wesley Smith at Columbia University Law School in New York City uh, Wesley I'm looking at the book which is just several feet away from me but um, my eyesight isn't what it used to be uh, a dog is a is a pig is a is a Oh, I'm sorry. A uh, rat is a pig is a dog is a boy is the name of his book. I'm sorry. <laughs> I had actually get closer to the book. See the title of it. Wesley Smith is um, put it this way. He doesn't think much of animal rights, um, and um, unlike Professor Garner who who uh, does include animals in the moral community and endorses a theory of animal rights. I don't agree with it, but um, he endorses a theory of animal rights. Wesley Smith thinks that animal rights is terrible, and, and a terrible idea, because it will undermine human exceptionalism. Uh, you know, we're at the center of the universe. That's where we belong, and anything which which um, uh, gets us uh, away from that position uh, is, is bad. Uh, and uh, my argument is that... Um, I don't agree with that. And, uh, and so uh, he and I will be debating each other on Thursday at Columbia Law School. Uh, and uh, as far as I know, that's an open event. Uh, and so uh, if, uh, if you are in the vicinity of Columbia University at lunchtime on Thursday and you want to stop in, then uh, I would encourage you to do so. I certainly hope it's, a, it's an open event. If you get there and they won't let you in, then I apologize. Um, but uh, you might want to call ahead and ask whether or not that event, uh, that event is open or not. Uh, but it should be a lively debate. Uh, Wesley and I uh, don't agree on very much at all. There are some things we do agree on. We both oppose violence, but other than that, I'm not sure that we, uh, we agree on very much. He comes from a very uh, conservative perspective. Uh, that's the background of his thinking, and uh, that's not the background of my thinking. So, in any event, uh, that ends Commentary 21. If you aren't vegan... Go vegan. You know, November is World Vegan Month. A good time. You know, if you've been thinking about taking the plunge, take it. If you consume any animal products, if you wear, eat, use any animal products, you're directly participating in animal exploitation. Now, think about this. You are engaging in completely gratuitous infliction of suffering and death on animals. We don't even have to get to the the fine intellectual points about animal exploitation to know that that's not a good idea. And you don't think it's a good idea. And, you know, those of you who have gotten this far listening to this recognize, even if you're not vegans, you know that that there's no difference between a, a, a piece of meat and a glass of milk. There's as much, if not more, suffering in a glass of milk as there is in a pound of steak. So it's World Vegan Month. Go vegan. It's really easy. It's incredibly easy. It's much better for your health. It's much better for the planet. And, most important, it's the morally right thing to do. It's not a matter of compassion. I'm just tired of hearing about, do the compassionate thing, go veg. I just cannot stand that, on multiple levels. The compassion aspect of it bothers me, and the veg aspect of it bothers me. We have a word called vegan. Use it. But, you know, this idea, Go be compassionate, go it's not just a matter of compassion. Compassion is not, you know, it's a good thing, but this is a matter of justice. We don't talk about. We don't say, "Don't be racist. Be compassionate." We say, "Don't be racist because it's morally wrong. It's unjust. You have a moral obligation not to engage in racism. You also have a legal obligation, but you know, it's the moral obligation. You have a moral obligation not to be racist. Not a matter of compassion. It's a matter of justice. When it comes to animals, we talk about compassion. Go veg. So, go vegan. It's easy. It's better for your health. It's better for the planet. It's the morally right thing to do. It's what we owe animals. It's a matter of justice. Thank you very much for listening. Visit the website, abolitionistapproach.com. You can uh, go from the website, from the homepage of the website, to the Abolitionist Approach Forum and sign up there and uh, engage in discourse about abolition and vegan philosophy with other abolitionist vegans. Uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, and uh, and I now have a Facebook page. Let's see what is the what is the uh, it's a Facebook.com/slash-abolition/slash-abolitionist approach, which I started fairly recently. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm doing what my my young internet savvy uh, abolitionist colleagues are advising me to do. They say that I have to have to do these things. So I'm not a big fan. Uh, necessarily of of, uh, of of everything internet, but I'm I'm trying. I'm trying. It's a generational thing, and I'm trying. Thank you very much. If you're not vegan, go vegan. Bye.